night. Uh, today, I happened, we were looking on the YouTube channel, the Refuge YouTube, YouTube channel, and I was curious which of my messages was the most popular message so far, which one has been viewed the most of Refuge Church. Do you know which one of my messages has been viewed the most? It was not my message. The most viewed message on the Refuge Church YouTube channel is from Jacqueline Dornbach on Mother's Day. <laughs> and I thought that was fitting that we had her schedule. So here's what happened is uh, I twisted around. And said, Usually we only get Mother's Day, but about six, seven weeks ago, she started just saying, man, I was praying, and God was giving this to my heart, and I was praying, and she was telling me these different things, and, uh, and, and I just said, after like the third or fourth time, I said, honey, it sounds to me like God is really laying something on your heart to speak, and she just chuckled at me the first few times, but I'm persistent, and uh, so I just said, I really, I, you really need to pray about this, because there's a reason I think God's really laying this on your heart. And I think that you should should speak it. And um, so I kind of twisted her arm. But uh, but she said, you know, I only speak Mother's Day. I'm not the speaker. I'm not a preacher. And I said, listen, our church is not someone who's here judging you or not supporting you. The people who are in this place tonight and watching online are supporters of her. Amen. And so she is coming to this pulpit, and I don't know all the words. I know the kind of a thought that she has, but I don't know everything she's going to say. But I am confident I can say this, that any word that comes out of her mouth, I 100% back it. So that's a pretty big thing. I don't say that to every guest speaker. But I will say that, that every word that comes out of her mouth tonight, I, I back it 100%. So if you would... Let's welcome Sister Jacqueline Dornbach to the, to the pulpit. Yeah, look at their stand. That's wonderful. You all are too sweet. Sit down. You embarrass me. Uh, thank you. Yes, he does twist my arm, and he is very, very persistent. So last week, he started talking um, about the series on the church. And he talked about being lively stones, and he spoke on the structure of the church, but he also talked about spiritual authority. And that is why I am here, really, in a nutshell, is because God places protection over our lives through spiritual authority. And I am submitting to my spiritual authority, which is my husband, who also happens to be my pastor. So this is not my comfortable place, and you all know that. Mother's Day has become more comfortable like I can speak on Mother's Day. It's a topic that's everyone's dear, you know, it's dear to their hearts. And, uh, but this is not a comfortable place. You know, leading worship is my comfortable place. But I was reminded of a time when leading worship was something I did not want to do. Actually, when we first moved here, I did not lead worship. And I had no intention of ever leading worship and no desire to lead worship. And then God just put me in a place where I had to do it. Um, my comfortable place at that time was playing the piano. I just wanted to be still and play the piano. And, uh, but there was also a time when playing the piano was not my comfortable place. <laughs> at that time, playing the tambourine was, and I could kill that tambourine. <laughs> I loved playing the tambourine. But there was a time when playing the tambourine wasn't my comfortable place. I just clapped in church, you know, just kept the beat. 
my point being that there's always something that's an uncomfortable place for us. And I read once that we should do something every day that scares us just a little bit. And it keeps us growing and it keeps us moving in the right direction. So I am here to be scared just a little bit <laughs> and to keep moving in the right direction. But pastor is right. God has put something in my spirit lately, and he does that a lot with me. And I have this way of preaching, and it's called through my husband. He works really well for me, mostly. Not this time, apparently. <laughs> but he really has been just placing something in my, in my spirit. And, uh, you know, he's telling me about his upcoming series about the church. Because if you didn't know, I get to hear a lot of the messages before you do. And so he's telling me about it, and I was like, you know what you need to talk about? You need to talk about this, the thing I've been harping on for the last few months. <laughs> and he looks at me, and he says, I think maybe you need to talk about that. And so, you know, it was just kind of one of those times when he said it, and I felt like, yeah, he might be right this time. I think I might need to speak about that. And so, you know, if you don't know my husband's leadership style, let me tell you, if you bring him something that you have a burden for, be prepared to take your burden with you. You will not deposit it into his lap and walk away. He doesn't like monkeys hanging out in his office, so he'll give you your monkey back, and he'll enable you to do the work of the ministry. And that is a really a scriptural thing. It's a very scriptural thing. Ephesians chapter 4 says, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. He is not here to do all the work of the ministry. He's here to equip us to do it. And so be prepared to take that ministry with you. So in submission, here I am, and I'm going to speak tonight. Let's go to the book of Exodus and some may think it's strange to go to the book of Exodus for anything to do with the church. But really, this is where the first blueprints of God's design for his church began. God's design for his called out people, the children of Israel, were really a type and a shadow of his design for his ultimate church. We can learn about God's character by looking at what he valued and the way that he designed things to be. His first called out and chosen people were the Israelites. His first dwelling place was the Ark of the Covenant. The removal or rolling back of sins took place at the altar of sacrifice. And I could go on and on, but Exodus really begins that blueprint of what the New Testament church is now. So in the 33rd chapter of Exodus, we enter a time where God has now given detailed instructions for the building of the tabernacle. But he had actually not, they had actually not yet began building it. I did not realize this when I was studying for this message. Um, they did not yet build it. God had given the instructions for it but the building had not yet taken place. So go to Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. God commanded them to leave the place that they were in, and to start going to his promise for them. Go to verse 7 now. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, this was not the tabernacle that 
was designed later with all of the curtains and with the brazen laborer. This was a place for the Ark of the Covenant to dwell. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. And this involves some inconvenience for them. In the design of the tabernacle, it was placed in the center of the camp so that everybody's tents faced that. But at this time, they took the tabernacle that they made, the makeshift tabernacle, so to speak, and it was outside of the camp. They had to go out to get there. And notice it says that everyone which sought the Lord went out. When we really seek the Lord, we're going to get out. It's going to take some time, some inconvenience, some distance to go to the place where God has designed for us. We will make the sacrifice because we're going to long to be in his presence. Verse 8 says, And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped, every man in his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp. Moses had communed with the Lord. The cloud represented the presence of God communing with Moses. And so that cloud came down, and that presence of God was there. So Moses communed with God. But then Moses went out again. He turned out again into the camp. And that was because he was the leader of the children of Israel. He was the leader that God had given them. And so God gave words to him to speak to the people. He knew God deeply. He knew God intimately. And God would direct him in the way that the people should go. But verse 11 goes on to say, But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Joshua is a powerful figure in the Old Testament, and this verse has always caught my attention. Often he's overlooked by our regard for Moses. So much is spoken about for Moses. But I submit that although his calling was different, it was no less important than that of Moses. After all, he was the one that God chose to actually take the people into the promised land. Moses saw it afar off, but he was never able to enter in. God promised it to Moses, but Joshua saw the fulfillment. And we can see ultimate discipleship in the life of Moses and Joshua. You know, I never really realized that until you start reading these scriptures and studying them. It's amazing to see the places that Moses took Joshua with him as a young man. We often tend to think that God alone chose Joshua when he was old because he was one of the spies that had a good report. But yet, Moses kind of had Joshua with him all along this process. Moses was, we, you know, sometimes we'll think that Moses perhaps was envious of Joshua because Joshua was the one that got to take the people into their promise while Moses was on the outside. However, when you go to Exodus chapter 24, verse 13 says, And Moses rose up, and his minister Joshua. And Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters, let him come unto them. 
And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mountain. And Moses was in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now notice in the passage that I just read, it speaks of God speaking to Moses. Moses is the man of God. Moses is the one responsible. Moses is the one whom God has given to give these commandments to his people. But Joshua, look at verses 13 and 14. It says, and Moses rose up and his minister Joshua. And Moses went up into the mount of God and said to the elders, tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and her are with here. They're here with you. Don't worry about us. They're here with you. If anyone has any matters, you go to them, which obviously they proved to be very poor leaders. <laughs> if you read the rest of that chapter, by the time that Aaron and, or not Aaron, Moses and Joshua come down from the mount, they've created this golden idol that just happened to come about. They just took off their earrings and threw them in the fire, and this thing just arrived. I've never seen it happen since, but apparently that's what they said happened. Obviously, it didn't just arrive. But Aaron and Moses, the scriptures make it very clear that Aaron and Moses were going up. Now, Joshua was Moses' assistant, and the Bible literally describes him as Moses' minister. At that time, he was a very young man. I'm guessing he was probably someone who did the, very, the less desirable jobs for Moses in his responsibility. He was his minister at that time. And yet this earned him a place beside Moses in perhaps one of the most powerful experiences someone on earth could live in. For we all can see and conclude, for all we can see and conclude, it never says that Joshua didn't go up into the mount. Moses makes it clear that him and Joshua are going up. Now God does, in the book, he notes that he spoke to Moses. But from everything we can read, Joshua was there. It earned him a place in that incredible experience. But God was yet not speaking to Joshua for the people. God was preparing Joshua. Moses was discipling Joshua. He had him with him. Moses allowed Joshua to be at his side when others were not. Moses took Joshua to places he did not yet fully understand. Moses was in a process of discipling Joshua. And God was preparing the next leader for his people. Then five chapters later in Exodus 33, we recall that once again, Moses took Joshua with him into the presence of God. However, this time, it clearly states, going back to those verses I read previously, that Moses went out to speak with the people, to give them the word that God had given them. But Joshua says, it says, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, verse 11, a young man departed not out of the tabernacle. You see, Joshua was not yet ready to lead the people. It wasn't Joshua's time, yet Joshua had to have his time of molding and experience in the presence of God before God could ever do what he wanted to do in Joshua's life. I wonder sometimes, had Joshua not stayed in the presence of God, would he have been the next leader of Israel? Had Joshua not positioned himself so closely to Moses and been willing to go up to the mountain, what would have happened in Joshua's life? 
Moses already knew God in an intimate way. He had learned to know God in an intimate way through 40 years in a wilderness, which God was molding and shaping and making him. He was a mediator between God and his children. But Joshua, he wasn't there yet. He was Joshua, a young man. And he needed to stay in the presence of God a while longer. He had a lot to learn. He needed to understand God more. He needed to be saturated in the glory of God till he too, like Moses, would view things from God's perspective. He was still Joshua, a young man, not the leader of Israel, just a minister to Moses. And so God says he departed not out of the tabernacle. It was only in the deep and abiding presence of God that God could mold Joshua into what he desired him to be. What if Joshua had been unwilling to go up to the mount? What if he had been too busy to take the time to stay in God's presence? God could never have used him like he did because God will only use vessels that he is allowed to shape. And God cannot shape us if we're not in his presence. Just as we cannot build something, mold something, paint something that our hands are not touching for long periods of time. Let me tell you, when we did these pews and these arches, our hands were literally on them for hours and hours and hours. Because in order to gel stain, you have to put a glove on and then you have to put a sock over that glove. And you have to rub and rub and rub and rub, coat after coat after coat. If our hands had not spent much time on them, they would still be the honey oak color of the ceiling right there. It took touching and molding. However, how many of you have ever made something? You've ever crafted something? Did you touch it? <laughs> or did you just stare at it? Did you look at it from afar and like, yep, it's turning out what I wanted it to be. Looking good. No, it takes that touch. It takes that physical touch in order to change something. And God made everything in his kingdom. The natural world re only reflects the spiritual world. It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, it just happens to parallel. Everything in the natural world is a reflection of the spiritual world. That is one of the reasons I am super, super passionate about music and the things that we listen to because music is one of those things that actually was not created on earth. It was created in the spiritual realm, in the heavens. And it, that's why it has such an amazing force. I was reminded recently, and this is a tangent, you'll have to bear with me, but I went to a Christian Christmas concert, and the singers were not even really that good, and they sang half, you know, songs that were super funny, and just like Christmassy, whatever songs, but they sang some spiritual songs as well, and they get up to honor the veterans and to do, you know, like a, a kind of a God bless America type of thing, and I'm like... I can't, I am weeping hysterically, like, I am embarrassed weeping, like, rubbing my eyes, getting the stuff out of my eyes, and in that moment, I just felt God speak to my heart and say, it's the music, and I was like, yeah, I'm not really, I mean, I'm emotional, but I'm not that emotional, okay, I mean, I was just, and it, the music touches a place in your heart that you really can't describe. And that's why worship is so vital to opening us up to the word of God because it just really helps that part of us that's spiritual. We open up that part of us that's spiritual through music. And so whatever you're listening to is opening up something in your spirit. And that's why we need to be very careful about the things that we listen to. Not because, oh, it's a law, but because 
if I'm listening to something that's not of God and that's not pushing me in a motivating or a spiritual direction, I'm opening something in my spirit up and I don't even realize it. But it's such a spiritual thing. So back to these notes in this message. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was in that deep abiding presence of God that God was able to mold Joshua. Molding takes time. It takes a lot of effort. And so tonight, I'm kind of coming to the crux of what I'm speaking. And you say, how does this apply to our series on the church? <laughs> kind of confused. The answer is simple. We as the church must be vigilant to stay in that presence of God. We must be determined to not depart out of the tabernacle as Joshua did. We must allow God to have his hand on us, shaping us, changing us, molding us, and making us in his image and for his purpose. We all want revival. I know you want to see people's lives change. You want to see God do great things. We want people to experience salvation. We all long to know God deeper. But our flesh and the culture that we live in, they fight against that. We live in such a fast-paced society. Everything is designed to be quick. We have microwaves. We have high-speed internet, which is never fast enough for us, is it? We have fast food. We have freeways. We have email. We have cell phones that can do almost absolutely everything. Gone are the days of visiting with our neighbors and making visits to friends unannounced just to hang out for a few hours. Nowadays, if you call me, you might not get me because I'm just too busy to answer the phone. We'll say, text me. Because texting takes a lot less time than a phone call, except for Brother Tim. I know he uses the phone. <laughs> and I know a lot of you do. But the, new, the, new, the younger generation, they don't talk on the phone. They text. It's a lot faster, and it's in my time, and it's in my convenience. So if we're not careful, this mentality, it sneaks into the church. It sneaks into the presence, our abiding in the presence of God. You know... XYZ church down the road, they only have an hour-long service, and they have three of them back-to-back. -back. I mean, knock them out, right? 9, 10, 11, boom, boom, boom. You know, and they run a 1,000 people. Can't we just cut service down a little? Less worship, shorter preaching, and why in the world do we need that deeper waters portion? Really? Don't we realize, doesn't, doesn't the pastor realize that we have places to be? And church would be a lot more convenient if we could just cut it down a little bit. We're rushing place to place, and we're losing something vital in the process. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But we, we don't like to wait for anything let alone in church, where we're just sometimes like, oh, gotta go. We want it to be fast. But God, he doesn't do things fast. When I was reading back through these notes today, I came across the story of Exodus where God calls Moses and apparently Joshua, who's with him, up to the mount. Do you know that they were there for six days before God finally spoke to Moses? He told him to come up to the mount. He had a certain thing to do. But they sat there for six days before God ever decided to call Moses up. I was just 
blown away by that. And then Moses was in the mount for 40 days and 40 nights. But he sat there waiting for six days before God actually did what he had said that he wanted to do. And I submit, if we're tired and if we're weary, God gave us a solution for that. He said to wait on him. The verb to wait means to stay where one is or delay action until a particular time or until something else happens. We are to, the synonyms are to stand back, hold back, be patient, bide one's time, hang there, or mark time. In other words, we stay, we delay, and we wait. A few years ago at General Conference, a young church planner preached a very vulnerable and open message. He was a hilarious guy. So funny. He actually, there's a picture on Facebook. Mark Brown, wasn't it? I believe is his name. Um, he has a picture where his face is plastered in the pulpit, like right there. He literally got down and like plastered his face in it. I forget what the context was, but I will never forget the moment. <laughs> because here you are at General Conference, like supposedly just going to preach this great message, you know, going to impress everybody and he humbled himself so much. You could tell that God had been doing a work in him for a very long time. He didn't care what you thought of him, but he was just an incredible guy. You could tell that in your interaction, listening to his message. And in it, this message, he spoke about how God had called him to this city. He had left this great career, this family business. God had called him to this city, and he just assumed that great things were going to happen and that God was going to start working and moving because God is powerful, and we know that he is powerful. So, of course, it was going to happen, and it was going to happen quickly. Then after a year or two of not seeing much happen, he was in a very dark place, and he felt like his calling perhaps was a mistake. His reason for being in that city was a mistake. He was confused. He was lonely. He felt like a failure. And he said one day he's just sitting in the presence of God like, I am hopeless. I cannot do what you have called me to do. And he said God brought a verse to his mind. And so he quick grabs his Bible and he looks up the verse. And it was 1 Corinthians 16 and 8. Very simple verse. It says, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. And he said, God literally said, you tarry until Pentecost. God did not promise an immediate Pentecost. When he spoke to the 400 plus people who saw him ascend, he told them to go and do what? Wait. Go and wait for the promise. Luke 24, 49, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. He told them to go and to wait. Go and to wait. And in Acts chapter 2, we see, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, just that line right there, the day of Pentecost was fully come. How long did they wait until that day had fully come? It says they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, it says that there were only 120 of them in that upper room. But it records that God's, Jesus spoke to over 400 people when he told them to go and wait. 
I've often wondered, was it just that they didn't obey? But as I thought about this message, I thought, I actually wonder if it was more that they just didn't wait. If God called for Moses to come up and then told him to wait for six days, how long were they waiting for that promise? How many came? Did they have more than 400? Did they tell their relatives and their friends and they're so excited and there's 1,000 people waiting for that promise of the Holy Ghost to be poured out? And then it just doesn't happen and it just doesn't happen and they're just waiting and they're just waiting. And we've all been in seasons of our lives where it feels like God gave us a promise and then we just sit there going, Lord, you remember me? I'm still here. I am still waiting. But yet if God was willing to tell Moses to come up, to give him the Ten Commandments for his people, and then just has him waiting there for days. He never went slack concerning his promise. He always had a plan. But I think sometimes God likes to see us in the waiting. Maybe they had lunch plans after service, some of those over 400 people that God told to wait. Or perhaps they were tired because they stayed up way too late on Saturday night. Or perhaps they just didn't feel like waiting. But in order for Pentecost to come, they had to wait. And the same is true for us today. We must, it is imperative that we learn to wait and to tarry in God's presence. In order for God to mold us and have his hands on us and make us what we need to be, we have to be present with him. And when did Pentecost come? It came when a group who would become the church, were willing to wait for something that they didn't even understand. They had no idea what God was going to do. They were just waiting for this thing that he had promised. And we as the local church must continue what the original church was birthed in. We must wait on God. We must wait in worship. When God is moving, we cannot be impatient with his work. We must tarry in his presence. We must learn to cultivate the moments when those songs are not being sung. Sometimes in worship service, you may notice, we don't always move to the next song. It's not because we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> it's because we're waiting, because something in our spirit is saying, stop for a moment. Sometimes God speaks Sometimes he just deeply ministers, but it's often in those moments where we are quiet and where we are just waiting on the leading of God's spirit that he does some of his deepest works. When pastor is giving us an invitation to come to the altar after he preaches, let us not neglect that time of waiting in his presence. Let that word come alive in our hearts and in our lives. Let God put his hands on us and mold us. And this can only be done by waiting in the presence of God and allowing God to apply that word into our hearts. There is no fast track for getting that word into your spirit. We have to wait and we have to allow God to challenge and change us. We have to cherish the altar and respect the altar. Our opening verses talk about how Joshua did not depart from the presence of God. He didn't depart from the altar that was in the tabernacle. He waited and he stayed. And we, I know you all do, we want people filled with the Holy Ghost. We want powerful moves of God at refuge. 
But in order for this to happen, we must tarry in his presence. We must be willing to stay past the point of our quick kneeling down and departing to go what do its next. That's not waiting. Waiting implies staying longer than we feel we should. It's longer than we feel necessary. We have to stay past the comfortable, stay past the moment that the emotions leave. I can guarantee you that the people in the upper room that received the gift of the Holy Ghost, they didn't want to be there anymore. They're probably really tired of waiting. But they stayed. They stayed past what they felt, and they tarried in his presence. So let me encourage you that while this message absolutely has to do with our personal and our private lives of tarrying, it's just as important. But it also has to do with the amount of time that we wait on God in a church setting. It has to do with our public worship. It has to do with the church tarrying. You know, spending that time in prayer ourselves around the altar, but also making sure that we stay longer than perhaps we even want to. And we reverence the altar. When you look back at the story of Joshua in the presence of God, it mentions that those who worshiped, there were a group that worshiped from their tent doors. But they weren't the ones that were mightily used of God. They worshiped in convenience. Joshua went out to worship, and he stayed in the presence of God. And as the church has grown, we face unique responsibilities, and we face unique challenges. We don't have a large foyer. We have groups of people who have never learned, perhaps, to approach an altar to pray. They might not even know how. Or they might be hesitant still. Or they might not even realize that that's the culture that we need to be creating and always approaching the altar and taking that time to stay in the presence of God. Because God has called us to tarry in his presence. And us as seasoned members of Refuge Church, we are the ones that help to create that culture. No one else can do it. When we have visitors come, they might not know anything about the Spirit of God. They might not have a clue, but when you see a group of people approaching an altar, perhaps they're like, oh, this is what we do, and we approach an altar. But let me say, when half of you stay in your seats, it doesn't create that culture. We've got to have a culture that is creating a way for people to stay and to tarry in the presence of God. And I know that not everyone will do it right away, but we have to be the people that lead in creating that culture. So I have a challenge for us as the church. Number one, always come to the altar. No matter if you feel the word applies to you or not, if it is about, you know, something completely outside of the realm of anything that has to do with you personally, we should always still come to the altar. Why? Because, number one, we can always spend time with God. There is never, never, never a reason that we don't need to spend time with God. But secondly, because other people could be touched by you coming to the altar, that you could be a conduit of God's spirit flowing through you. And you help create the culture of the church, the culture of tarrying in his presence. Secondly, we need to reverence the altar. When you have finished praying yourself, 
when I have finished praying myself. Pray with other people. I saw this happen on Sunday, and it was beautiful. People prayed. They prayed with themselves, and then they prayed with other people, and there was a longer than has been usual altar service, and people's lives were changed, and they were touched because we have to tarry until Pentecost. Most people don't just walk to the altar and boom, God just instantly fills them with the Spirit of God. You know, you don't come into the presence of God. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning, drink my cup of coffee, and oh, the Holy Ghost just hits me. It's like crazy. No, most of the time, I'm just like, Jesus, I am here. Please help me to wake up. I'm going to read my Bible first. Maybe you can get to me, you know, until I can talk because I wake up very slowly. Oh, it's because I don't sleep enough, especially this last week. But, you know, a lot of you probably don't get enough rest. And you're tired in the morning when you go to spend your time with God. And that Holy Ghost, it just doesn't suddenly fall on you out of nowhere. I wish it did, but it doesn't most of the time. It requires some staying in his presence. It requires some persistence. It requires some poking myself and saying, you will speak. Because I don't want to speak in the morning. If you try and speak to me in the first 30 minutes that I wake up, it is not a pleasant experience. No desire to talk. He wakes up the exact opposite. It's like, oh, he's learned. Actually, now I, I just wake up consistently earlier. And by that time, usually by the time he's dressed and downstairs, I'm like, okay, I can just converse a little bit. <laughs> but I don't wake up ready to talk. Do any, who wakes up ready to talk? <laughs> There's only th four, five, six. Okay. And the rest of you, do you wake up not ready to talk? <laughs> so you understand. It takes some time sometimes to wake up, and it takes some time in the presence of God before you feel that spirit of God just begin moving, because Pentecost requires tarrying, and the spirit of God requires waiting. So we need to reverence the altar. When we finish praying, pray with the people around you. Respect the presence of God. I'm going to be really, really honest, and I don't want to beat anybody up, but I have a different perspective than most people because most of the time I spend altar service right there. And there are so many times that you may see me praying and you just really think God is touching me. And he is a lot of times, but sometimes my heart is just weeping. Because I will see people trying to pray around the sanctuary and nobody noticing that they're there. Worse than that, we may not even notice they're there and be laughing and carrying on conversations right beside them. And I think, how are people going to have that deep experience with God if we don't cherish his presence? And so you can understand my heart in that and that we be aware of the people around us because there are a lot of people that can't, Perhaps they don't know to approach the altar. Perhaps it's just not their habit yet. And they'll be praying in the back pews. And people will be next to them laughing and talking. And that doesn't create a culture of tarrying. It makes you feel uncomfortable that you're still praying. And so I ask, you know, and I've, this is my thing that I've talked to my husband so much about, you know, that we create a culture 
that we reverence the presence of God in this sanctuary. And I know that it is hard with our foyer, but we can do it. We can take our conversations, if they're not about God or talking to God, out to the foyer or down to the playground. Because when Pentecost came, they were in one mind and in one accord. They were of one thought process, and that was, we are waiting and we are staying. And we need to have that one mind and one accord as the church. Have you noticed that when people receive the Spirit of God, our altar calls look different? People, even if they're not praying with the person, are usually praying around the person. And it's because when we get into that unity of mind and of spirit, that's when God can let Pentecost be poured out on his church. So the more unity that we have, the more tearing that we have, the more infilling of the spirit will take place. Tarry at the altar, not just for yourself, but tarry for the people that don't yet know God. Tarry for people that have never experienced the spirit of God. Because unless we do, they may never get that opportunity. Tarrying is vital to revival. It truly is. And as this church has grown, this entire building has become an altar. And in our new sanctuary, I pray for a huge foyer. Because fellowship is important too, and I know that it is. And we love each other at Refuge. That is a thing we do so well. We love and we connect and we hug and we talk and it's beautiful and it's important. So do not misunderstand that I don't think that is important. It is what makes us who we are. But so does tearing in the presence of God. And so we have to find a way to blend these things. So on any given Sunday, there are people all over this church, in the back pews, especially now too, that are in their pews praying. And while I wish they would come to the altar, we will create a culture that will not neglect to make the entire sanctuary an altar, to honor it, to respect it, and to have conversations that are not with God away from it. And if Michelle and Brother Tim would come, we're going to sing a song that has to do with this. And we're going to open up the altars tonight. But let's work to create a culture of tearing. For then and only then can true Pentecost come. And in order to be the church, we must wait like the church. Let us tarry, like Mark Brown talked about, until Pentecost so tonight, we're going to do that, and I invite you to stand. It says that when we wait upon the Lord, we will renew our strength. We will mount up with wings as eagles. We will run and not be weary, and we will walk and not faint. But there's that song that goes on to say, but teach me, Lord. Teach me to wait, because waiting does not come easily for us. Praise God. <laughs> I'm going to reset this keyboard. And let's find a place at the altar.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. 